Welcome to A Lovely Wallpaper, a podcast exploring an underappreciated way of appreciating poetry by committing it to memory. To know a poem by heart means having a worry stone, a provocation, a comfort, a quick exit, always close at hand. Lose yourself in a poem, gain a world with its mastery. The art of losing isn't hard to master. So many things seem filled with the intent to be lost that a loss is no disaster. In this episode, we will work with the helpful voice of Catherine Robson on learning Elizabeth Bishop's poem, Casabianca. This is a poem I came upon first as a college student perusing a collected works of Bishop, and it stood out to me for its exotic title and its mysteriousness. Part of this mystique owed to my obliviousness that it quoted from a source text that would have been very well known and very often memorized in Bishop's time. So I am indebted to Robson's work for finally cluing me in on the reference to Felicia Hemmons's. 1826 poem of the same title, which Bishop quotes from about a hundred years after Hemans's publication, as she creates a very loving and disturbing ode to the practice of children forcibly reciting poetry. Robson is a professor of English at NYU and author of Heartbeats, Everyday Life and the Memorized Poem, which is, on its face, an academic text about the history of compulsory memorization in schools, but which becomes a very wide-ranging and fascinating history of British and American public education during an era when it was changing and expanding rapidly. But one of my favorite things about the book is that it is organized around case studies of three of the most memorized poems in the history of forcing small children to do that sort of thing. That plus the surprise of finding that not one of these morbid poems really seems the least bit kid-friendly to our modern ears. Welcome, Catherine. Thank you, Abby. Nice to be here. So for a topic that seems at first glance so specific, compulsory poetry recitation, your book touches on a lot of different fields. What got you started on the topic of memorization? Well, it's really nice to come at this from the angle of Felicia Hemans' poem, Casabianca, because that really was the beginning. What was happening? I had written a dissertation about Victorian literature and little girls, and particularly old men who were perhaps overly interested in little girls, so Lewis Carroll, Ruskin, and so forth. And one of the themes of that book was how often the little girls ended up dead or deep in the earth of England. You might think of Alice in Wonderland falling all that way down the rabbit hole. And as I got to the sort of end of the century and the end of the project, I was thinking about boys' bodies and whether there was a similar kind of narrative in play. And one of the things in my head was that first stanza of the original Casabianca poem, the boy stood on the burning deck whence all but he had fled, the flame that lit the battle's wreck shone round him all the dead. And I knew, even though I hadn't got this poem memorised, I knew that it had been massively memorised and that it was a poem about the blowing up of this small child standing on the deck of a ship during the Battle of the Nile and the Napoleonic Wars. 
And I was thinking, that's a really interesting example of a body that doesn't get buried properly. That whereas all my little girls seem lodged in the earth, I've got Peter Pan flying off across the skies. I've got Kim walking across India. And I have this body of a young French Corsican sailor who's blown up during this battle. And, you know, the poem goes into very visceral description of gobbets of his flesh landing, sort of sizzling in the waters of the Mediterranean. And I was thinking, oh, that's an interesting example of a body that doesn't get buried properly. And I started thinking, oh, maybe I'm thinking this in wider terms. And then I realized it wasn't so much the figure of this unburied body. It was the idea that bits of this body had lodged in so many minds. I realized that so many people knew fragments of the poem, like fragments of the body, that they had somehow, there'd been some sort of propulsive energy that had caused um, bits of this text to crop up all over the place. And if, if you're British, you know, and, and maybe American too, you can tell me, you know parodies of this, the boy stood on the burning deck, his lips are all in blisters, the flames had burned his knickers off, he'd have to wear his sisters. I mean, usually silly parodies, mm -hmm. but people knew the first line, a lot of people of my parents' generation, certainly of my grandparents' generation, they knew the first line of the poem, they maybe knew a parodic quatrain, but people didn't remember the rest of the poem. So it was this idea that it had got scattered. I thought, oh, well, oh, yeah, it must be something to do with the time when everyone used to memorize the same poems. And I thought, oh, well, go and, I'll go and find the standard history of recitation in schools, and then I can do what I want with this one particular poem. And I went and looked and found the standard history of this phenomenon didn't exist. And I thought, oh, blooming heck, I'm going to have to write it myself. So it really, that was the process whereby thinking about how bits of one poem got scattered into so many minds made me think, oh, I'll have to go and work out what the engine was. What was the distributive engine that caused so many thousands and thousands of people to know this poem and other poems. So it's all down to Casabianca. What an amazing uh, metaphor you're making here. Yeah, it's gobbits. It's gobbits of <laughs> humanity so that have stayed with us. And we don't really, in many cases, we don't remember why it's there. And I think that's what's so lovely about the Bishop poem. I mean, it's 120 years later, but she is directly thinking about the experience of a poor child not standing on the burning deck of a ship in a sea battle in the Napoleonic Wars, but standing on a school platform and having to desperately remember the lines of that Felicia Hemans poem so that the boy doesn't get into trouble. And it was this idea of we often have a valorized view of, wasn't it wonderful when there was a time when everybody had this common stock of poetic knowledge in their heads? But the more I thought about it, I thought, and you know, and it was Bishop that helped me think this, it must have been awful for lots of kids. They must have hated doing it. They must have been so embarrassed, so shy, their, you know, their knees were wobbling, their palms were clammy, you know, and some of them, 
in certain pedagogical settings were worried they were going to get beaten or punished if they didn't do it right. And what Bishop does with this bit of social history, I think, and makes such a beautiful little poem out of it. So I'm, I'm interested in the fact that it captured you even without knowing that history. Yeah, I mean, I guess I was probably reading in the context of looking at a lot of modernism at that time in my education. So the more mysterious something was, the more questions lodged in my mind, the better. So I just remember that kind of leaving an impression on me because I couldn't figure it out, but it sounded beautiful and it and it, it was very mysterious. So when I saw the Felicia Hemmons poem right away, I said, oh, okay, that's a... Uh, that's where this is coming from. And it's such a, it's a poem that is that is so interesting uh, for kind of exploring what what uh, like loyalty is expected of children, what type of uh, how children are really expected to kind of go along and perform uh, perform for for adults. How did it become so popular to ask kids to memorize poetry in school? How did that become a part of of education for uh, the period that you're talking about in the book? It really is a sort of byproduct of the fact that rote memorization was the default teaching method for every subject. So particularly, say, in the American setting, the recitation for many, for a long period, certainly throughout the 19th century, has no particular connection to poetry. Recitation is what you do with every subject. And, for, you know, for a long period in American education, the curriculum really was whatever book kids could bring in. And the default learning method was to learn to memorize a passage from that text. It might be on you know, the geography of the Great Lakes, but then you would go up to the recitation bench at the front of the school, you would give it to your teacher, you'd have to repeat what you just memorized, that paragraph, and the teacher would be following it in the book. And that was learning. And I, I love it, say, even to this day in at NYU, section for, you know, the, which the graduate students teach after we've done our lectures during the week is called recitation. And it just means, you know, it's a hangover from this earlier time when rote memorization and then vocalization was the default form. So poetry was part of that. But as rote memorization kind of fell away, the poetry part of it continued because it had a sort of greater prestige. It was connected with other activities that would happen in the community to celebrate particular events or on key days like Arbor Day or Memorial Day and so forth. But it didn't start with poetry being the thing. It was because within mass education, particularly when you didn't have very well-trained teachers, you didn't have a lot of resources, just getting your students to memorize was the best that could be done really so it's it's an interesting back formation it has a slightly different history in britain but in both countries you know it was a it was just a standard part of the curriculum in britain it was connected with how much a school could earn when the inspectors came they would listen to the pupils recite and so a school's operating budget for a period in the 19th century was connected to how well the recitation exercise was done. So it really had that key place uh, in the second half of the 19th century and into the 20th century. 
That's funny. An interesting analogy could be drawn to standardized testing when uh, schools budgeting is kind of tied up in how well they're able to get their students to perform on, on, on standardized tests. I mean, and it was also a pretty easy way, the, the um, recitation of poetry, to demonstrate that the kids have accomplished something, right? Absolutely. Easy, easy might not yeah. be the right word, but a way, no, no, but a it, quantifiable it, it way. It was measurable. It was yeah. measurable. I mean, trying to find out how much any individual child has understood about a poem, that is much more difficult. It's also much more difficult in the classroom. You know, you need to be a particular kind of educator to have either the skills or desire to, you know, well, how do you think the meter's working here? How do you think the theme is being expressed? That is more difficult than saying, right, we're all going to memorize I Wandered Lonely as a Cloud. They are different skills. And, you know, there were very little resources, you know, not huge budgets. You can see why this was a technology that kind of worked for a, for a given time and place. You mentioned it in your book that one of your greatest challenges was to discover how kids actually felt, how kids actually reacted, because so much material about kids being asked to memorize poetry is told in retrospect. Tell me a little bit about how you approach this challenge. No, that's exactly right. And if one would say we were looking for recordings, you don't get recordings of everyday classroom practice. You might get some child who was a champion reciter of Robert Burns or something, but you don't get the quotidian, you don't get the everyday. And when I was looking... You don't get to hear the kids snickering in the corner. Exactly, or the person, you know, or the teacher breaking down and being unable your gasket. To... What you do get, um, you know, I found two sort of big areas where I could get, you know, not exactly close, but close enough. The 19th century novel is really interested in staging scenes in which children recite. Uh, listeners might remember that in Tom Sawyer, this is kind of a big deal. There's a you know, failed recitation scene and so forth. And when I'm reading Anne of Green Gables, you get a lot of recitation scenes there. You get in more adult literature, you get failed recitation and how awful it is and the um, the experience of, okay, as I was saying, that sort of sweaty palm and doing it wrong. Thomas Mann's Buddenbrooks is a wonderful place to see a number of set pieces of failed recitation. There's also The Way of All Flesh has a terrible reciting scene that goes wrong as well. So you can see, you know, you get these kind of representations in fiction or, you know, quite autobiographical texts. But a place where I did find memories about having been required to recite are in working class memoirs and autobiographies. And this, I'm, I'm more familiar with the British side of it here. And so many of the people that wrote about it, they tended to love it. And you can see, oh, well, they're writing their memoir, they're writing an autobiography, they're interested in crafting texts there is a kind of you know your, your your sample is sort of skewed towards the enjoyment of the literary and for many of them their route you know their social mobility came through success in education many of them are teachers and they tend to write about how the recitation exercise was the only place where they had a kind of richness of diction where they you often get 
the language where they talk about it made me feel full. It was like, you know, beautiful, rich sounding words in my mouth. Um, and so these tend to be very celebratory memories. But again, you know, I kept thinking, I've only got part of the sample here. Yes. And also there's the distance of time. People are looking back. I'm sure for some kids it was really painful. And that's why the Bishop poem is so important to me because she throws herself into the work of imagining, of thinking about that quivering boy's body and seeing a connection between the sailor body that is eviscerated and this child of a later age who's having to reproduce. You know, I say it's absolute blood and guts poem. The <laughs> fact that this was regularly required as a memorized piece, you know, it sort of staggers us when we think, oh, keep young children from morbid themes. Absolutely not the case back then. So, <laughs> right. right. Keep them interested with morbid themes, maybe was the strategy. <laughs> well, one of the reasons I think it, it had this, the, the, the Felicia Hemans poem got such a central place within the recitation canon, and certainly this is on the, the British side of things, was that there was a desire for education for um, the poor to be Christian and uplifting and tell moral stories. But there were so many doctrinal fights between different sects in British education. And this is why Britain is very late in having a national education system. It's not really till 1870 when you think the Prussians are doing that in the end of the, the 18th century. That's, that's really, really late. You get poetry in the schoolroom readers because it's a way of doing religion by other means. And it's not going to get different sects worried that, oh, they're teaching that more in a Catholic way or more in a Methodist way. or And so a poem like Casabianca, it's absolutely a Christ on the cross poem in a different mode. And it's being faithful to the father and but still sort of saying, my father, may I go? It's, you know, my Lord, you know, have thou forsaken me. It is a Christ by other means poem. And so I think that's one of the reasons why it is is so central in the British canon. That's funny. I mean, I was just thinking last night as I was looking back over the whole book at the very beginning in your in your introduction, you invoke George Steiner's critic reader, where you talk about his his thought that the critic has a very secular role as a reader. But the reader or the memorizer to to extend it a little bit has a very religious role. So that is interesting to think about these poems being memorized almost as secular prayers within the school system. Yeah, no, I think that's, you know, I found that Steiner piece, one of the few really sort of um, thoughtful theoretical engagements I found with this topic. And the idea that literary criticism and what we do in English lit departments is kind of at an angle to the work that you are, you know, what we do, we quote, we take a part out and we analyze. And there is a sort of ironic relation between the critic and the text that he or she is discussing. Whereas, as you say, the reader is akin to a kind of religious relation. And of course, you know, being able to memorize the Quran, um, people who have large swathes of the the Bible memorized, you aren't criticizing it. You are worshipping it in a way. You are internalizing it. And the distance quite literally disappears. Yeah. Yes, yeah. And to me, that's a really interesting 
question, what, what does it mean to have the voice of another inside your head? And I'm sure if listeners are encouraged through your podcast to to memorize there it's a very in one of the other sections of the book and when I think a lot about Henley's poem Invictus and Kipling's poem If and how one is an I poem and one is a you poem you know who is the I who is the you one of the things that helped me think about this was thinking of the, the, the you know the Mobius strip where there is the twist where you can't tell where one thing ends and the other begins. And if you are reciting Henley's poem Invictus, you know, I am the master of my fate, I am the captain of my soul, who is the I? Is it Henley's I or is it your I? And I think there is something akin to a kind of religious merging that goes on there that certainly is not part of what literary criticism historically has done, certainly since... T.S. Eliot onwards, we imagine ourselves at a critical angle. And that's certainly not how many poets in the 19th century were thinking. They weren't at an angle to society. They felt they were speaking for society. And that's a sense of poetry that we have sort of lost. And we tend to think poems that don't have a critical relation to the world that they're talking about as being somehow sappy or soppy. And I think that's one of the reasons so much Victorian poetry is denigrated. It doesn't have ironic distance on the subject that it's talking about. I love that uh, that discussion of Invictus in, in the afterward. It was so interesting to see all of the different ways it kind of appeared in its afterlife from Timothy McVeigh's uh, final statement to advertisements for gun manufacturers to a film with Ronald Reagan in it as it is it oh epic? it's yeah I mean people might know King's Row and the you know, Ronald Reagan lying in bed when the characters had his legs amputated and he starts to, you know asks for a recitation of this poem and then Again, people may know the Clint Eastwood film about Nelson Mandela and how apparently Invictus was a, an important poem for him when he was in prison for all those years in Robben Island. So Tim McVeigh, the Oklahoma bomber on one side, you know, this was his final statement before he was executed. He wrote it out in his own handwriting and signed it Tim McVeigh. And the story is that when it was first handed out to journalists outside the prison, they thought Tim McVeigh had written this poem. And it took a while. Oh, no, no, it's by some you know, 19th century guy. I mean, Henley is a fascinating figure. He was a big friend of Robert Louis Stevenson. He is the inspiration for Long John Silver in Treasure Island. The poem really is about coming out of the experience of surgery, about the experience of anesthesia. And Henley had had to have one of his legs amputated. He had tuberculosis of the bone. But the fact, you know, and I think this is what, you know, I can tell what interests you about the memorized poem, it travels, it goes into all these different heads. Different people make it their own. And you can't tell where the poem ends and you begin. There is something very profound about that relationship. And Different poems will mean different things to different people, but there's something, you know, we can love novels, but we don't internalize them. Um, this, you can take a short poem. You or, don't resurrect them out of the blue. Yeah, strange yeah, and, it, yeah. and so there is, you know, something very mysterious and something that can be very beautiful about relationship with a memorized poem. 
You know, it's so funny. Um, the other day, to add one more one more scenario of 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 uh, the use of Invictus, I was talking to a friend the other day. Um, we weren't talking about this poem at all. I was just I was talking about the podcast, and I asked her if she had um if she had memorized anything, and she said, "Oh yeah, you know, when I was in junior high, she was in this um in a preparatory program to get kids uh, scholarships at New York private schools, and everybody was forced to memorize that." It was just so much baked into their up by the bootstraps mentality that she doesn't relish the poem, I think, because, you know, it was so representative of uh, this push that was on the kids, this pressure. Yeah, to- no, it is often, it's, you know, quite literally the requirement to perform. But when I was teaching at UC Davis many years ago, and I used to give talks about uh, Casabianca, and one of my grad students, she said, you know, my school, and she was from upstate New York, she said, you know, we had an Invictus Day at school. And on that day, any teacher could point at any student and the student would have to climb on the desk in kind of dead poet society mode and recite the poem. And so this was a sort of gift to me. So whenever I gave a talk, I would make sure Kerry was there. And I'd go, Kerry, Invictus. She would climb up on her chair and recite the poem. Um, so, you know, and I, I got her to write to her high school English teacher and say, in the wake of the Oklahoma bombing and Tim McVeigh's leaving of this as his final statement, do you have any different feelings? And the teacher said, Absolutely. We're not letting that guy kill our tradition. So as far as I know, they're still doing it. They still have Invictus Day. So That's so funny. So anyways, adds a scholarship poem to, uh, or scholarship kid poem to uh, the list of uh, different kind of forms Invictus takes on. I'm also really interested in one of the one of the other uh, poems that you used as case studies, Elegy in a Country Graveyard. That was fascinating because of its political utility. Can you describe a little bit about the poem and what it meant in the context of the classroom in its day? Yeah, Gray's Elegy, you know, one of the things I tried to do in I three main case studies. One's Casabianca, which is, as you say, partially remembered, just maybe just a fragment here or there. The third one is a poem that has dropped out of sight. It's The Burial of Sir John Moore after Corona by Wolfe. And that one, I say, has disappeared, although you can find lots and lots of traces of it in the 19th century, which show how well distributed it was. But what interested me about Gray's Elegy is this is a poem that has a presence in lots of different canons. It's always been studied in the university as long as the study of vernacular English has been a university subject to study at that study at the high school. But it had this place in the, the, the juvenile canon as well. It's a poem that has a very famous critical reading of it by William Empson, uh, where he talks about the kind of bad faith of this poem. It is a lamentation that in all the the people who had died in unmarked graves in the English country churchyard, that none of these people had the chance, these peasants, these lowly sons of the English soil, none of them had the chance to grow and become, as he says, muting glorious Miltons. They couldn't become great poets. They couldn't be orators. They couldn't be members of parliament. And then the poem goes on to say, well, perhaps it's just as well that didn't happen. Who knows what bad things they might have done. And so it's a poem that opens up the fact in the 18th century that there is this you know, really zero chance of social mobility and then closes it down again. 
And what I found fascinating with this poem, and again, this was very much in the British context, of realising this was a poem that right working class kids would have assigned to them. How did it feel for them to realise that the people it was talking about as having no chance, that they now, they were that strata of, strata of society? And so the ironies of that seemed... Um, very interesting to me. So it was a poem that the case study let me think a lot about the mixed feelings you might have about cultural capital. You know, you you gained this poem, you knew you were a bright kid at school, you might be able to go on to a little bit more school education. And yet it was a poem that's saying, but that says you're not quite the thing. You, you know, you're not the part of British society out of which it's noble and heroic acts and works of literature will spring. So it was it was really thinking about the um the mixed feelings that cultural capital might bring, that when you embed, as we've been talking about, when you embed something within you, what if it's actually saying quite a damaging message to you? So it allowed me to think about some of those issues. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. I was reading recently Imperial Intimacies by Hazel Carby. Do you know? Mm -hmm. that? Oh, yes. Yeah, I read it. Yeah. Yeah, there's a scene where she goes to visit her father to whom she's been sending all of these academic texts about race and yeah. more yeah. radical reading. And she finds him reading Thomas Gray and is a little bit shocked and a little bit awed because you know, her feelings are probably more Empson aligned. And he has this connection that probably dates to childhood with this poem. And of course, it's kind of complicated by the fact that he himself has moved to England to join the RAF and has a, has a complicated relationship to fitting into English society, whether, you know, he... And I think that raises a, a really interesting larger topic that I, you know, I kind of bracket in the book. And I think if I were writing it now, I would do it differently. I cast my net really to think only about mass education in Britain and in the US. But of course, this was part of Britain's imperial spread over the world. And one of the things that you will find in many writings, whether they're fiction or poetry or autobiographies from the West Indies, you will have so many wonderful writers saying, I had to memorize this poem about daffodils. I'd never seen a daffodil in my life. What did that mean? That this part of the dominant culture of Britain is sent out and then put into the minds of all these little kids, whether they want it or not. And so, again, the question, you know, I was talking about it in relation to class, but I think the questions in relation to race that it, it, it gives rise to are just and arguably of more interest and of course one could do these histories in other languages as well and that that's one of the fun parts of working on this is knowing that if I start to talk to an Italian about recitation he or she will give me some Dante's Inferno if I talk to a Russian bits of Pushkin will come out you know that it's you can go in many different places with this topic because people feel very strongly about the words of others that live within them and I say that it's not always wholly positive. And I think that's that's interesting to think about. What does it mean that this is it's such a clear symbol of the of a educational social structure being embedded within you and then being part of you and conditioning you for good or ill for the rest of your life? Right, right. If there's something a little bit authoritarian about having a kid memorize a poem, then that compounded with 
a colonial school system, really, it's, it's fascinating. Um, one of the things that really keeps your book uh, so dynamic is uh, a refusal to either idealize memorizing poetry as, you know, back in the day when everybody had beautiful words running through their head, or to dismiss the roteness of the, uh, of the act, to dismiss it as poor pedagogy. Step away from your neutrality here for a second. Do you know some poems by heart and do you use them? Here's the truth. I'm a huge quoter and I can give you a couple of lines here and there. And I find, you know, I love in my teaching to bring in, you know, here's, here's a little bit of Shelley, here's a bit of Keats, here's, you know, some Blake. But I historically have not been a good reciter. I can give you 12 lines of Thomas Hardy. I look into my glass and view my wasting skin. That's It's Valentine's Day. It's a lovely poem about being old and yet still feeling the, the beatings of the heart. I did force myself to memorize Invictus because I really thought I ought to be able to do that one. I can do the owl and the pussycat. You point at you on Invictus Day. Better <laughs> be prepared. But it was, you know... Um, you know, I was fascinated. My kids were in elementary school in Northern California when I was writing this. And, you know, one of them had a first grade teacher who she was mad keen for recitation. And so my son, Tom, can do Robert Burns, My Love is Like a Red, Red Rose. His twin was in a had another first grade teacher and she didn't like it. She thought it was authoritarian. So you know, they wrote their own poems. So that to me was a nice sort of example of it really depends upon the individual instructor. Um, and so the whole education I had, I was first generation comprehensive school, which was a particularly sort of it was trying to get rid of the class structure of long bedeviled and still bedevils British um, uh, education, there's no way we were ever going to be asked to memorize. So any memorize, memorization that has happened, I've done for myself at a, at a later stage. Right. That's interesting. When I asked you to use them, I know um, you took it to mean just recitation, but I'm wondering, do you have things that come back into your head just in private moments too? I would say the Thomas Hardy is, I think, my favorite writer. I love writers who write in different love genres. He's smiling the fact that he was the deadest know, thing alive enough to have strength to die. Oh, that is that's that's a tough one. That, but do you do you know? I look into my glass. Shall I give you that? Oh, I would love that. I'd love that. I look into my glass and view my wasting skin and say, "Would God it came to pass my heart had shrunk as thin." For then I, undistressed by hearts grown cold, could lonely wait my endless rest with equanimity. But time to make me grieve, part steals, let part abide, and shakes this fragile frame at eve with throbbings of noontide. He's so brilliantly miserable, and I love it. I don't know if um, the Alan Bennett's The History Boys is an important play or film for you but there's an amazing scene in that where um there is a recitation scene and a student recites drummer hodge about the burial of a raw west country recruit during the boer war and that's a, again a poem that means a great deal that's to me third case study um, but in the discussion yeah it's just just amazing but in the conversation that the cat the teacher and the student have after this recitation 
the teacher points out how Hardy loves unforms, uncoffined. I like it in the poem that I just recite, undistressed by hearts grown cold for me, unkissed, unvisited. Hardy is really interested in the sort of the emotions of negation. And so I love it that that poem has undistressed in there. And Darkling Thrush, if you know that poem, and it ends with the word unaware. And yeah, Hardy does it for me. I think he's fantastic. Right, right. All right. Well, thank you so much. This was a wonderful conversation. And I was so glad to hear a little bit more about your book and about your thoughts on memorization. Would you go ahead and read for me now? Let me go forward now with Elizabeth Bishop and Casabianca. Loves the boy stood on the burning deck, trying to recite, the boy stood on the burning deck. Loves the sun stood stammering elocution while the poor ship in flames went down. Loves the obstinate boy, the ship, even the swimming sailors, who would like a score and platform too, or an excuse to stay on deck. And loves the burning boy. Thank you, Catherine. I am so glad to have spent some time teasing out the ambivalence and intense emotional charge that can surround text, which inhabits so many people's memory. And listeners, I hope that learning a poem which compares stammering through a memorized poem to going down with a burning ship is just your strange idea of a good time. So today, I propose Casabianca by Elizabeth Bishop for you to learn and keep. Whether you are walking or folding laundry or commuting or waiting around for something, I hope that you are installed, a quiet moment at hand, to listen, repeat, and naturalize these words. At only 10 lines, this poem is quite short, but because of an irregular meter and some unusual enjambments, it might be a bit harder than, say, the 20-line Blake poem of our last episode. Or not. We'll see. It's an experiment. Rather than going line by line, let's begin with a sentence, which takes up the first two and a half lines. You should hear the line breaks in Catherine's reading, but if not, the poem's text is posted in the episode description. Here goes. Loves the boy stood on the burning deck, trying to recite, the boy stood on the burning deck. Let's try it again. Loves the boy stood on the burning deck, trying to recite. The boy stood on the burning deck. Now we'll add the rest of the stanza. Loves the sun stood stammering elocution while the poor ship in flames went down. Oof, stood stammering elocution is a tongue twister for sure, and a great moment for conveying the feel of a child faltering in the face of pressure. Let's put that stanza together. Loves the boy stood on the burning deck, trying to recite, the boy stood on the burning deck. Loves the sun stood stammering elocution while the poor ship in flames went down.
let's try it again because it's so stammery and difficult. Loves the boy stood on the burning deck, trying to recite, the boy stood on the burning deck. Loves the sun stood stammering elocution while the poor ship in flames went down. Loves, contracted with an apostrophe S as it is, is another verbal tripping point in this child's awkward trying recitation and a consistent one. This contraction of love and is is the subject-verb combination of all four sentences in this poem. These contracted words work to make the poem feel so intimate, as though the speaker, if not the teacher or the class, feels the real weight of the child's effort to please. We'll go on to the three lines that begin the second and last stanza. Loves the obstinate boy, the ship, even the swimming sailors, who would like a score and platform too. It's so funny and sad for the schoolroom platform, this site of anxiety, to become a saving grace and proving ground for all that is going awry. Let's do it again. Loves the obstinate boy, the ship, even the swimming sailors, who would like a score and platform too. I regularly pass a pizza place called Casa Bianca. It makes pretty crummy pizza, but it is easy to love anyway because of the warm glow of its huge neon sign and the fact that it has been there forever and is a classic multi-generational affair. But since getting to know this poem, now when I pass it, all I can think is that the patrons' children and grandchildren are going down nobly with the half-assed recipes of their forefathers. Though, actually, the business seems to be doing quite well. Why do I mention it? Visuals are supposed to lodge stuff in our memory, so why not? On to the final two lines. Or an excuse to stay on deck. And loves the burning boy. Again. Or an excuse to stay on deck and loves the burning boy. Let's put the second stanza together. Loves the obstinate boy, the ship, even the swimming sailors, who would like a score and platform too, or an excuse to stay on deck, and loves the burning boy. Thank goodness Bishop did not stay true to the Hemans poem here. Loves the exploding boy would have sounded awful. A joke, but really, it is so beautiful how Bishop develops the theme of a child's determination to prove their worth and puts it on a scale where the child is just melting down a bit rather than self-immolating. 
and the love becomes somehow much more heartbreaking. I think that's because of the way she swaps out Hemans' pint-sized hubris and replaces it with a very genuine pathos. Now that we've reached the end of this short poem, let's try the whole thing together. Loves the boy stood on the burning deck, trying to recite, the boy stood on the burning deck. Loves the sun stood stammering elocution while the poor ship in flames went down. Loves the obstinate boy, the ship, even the swimming sailors, who would like a score and platform too, or an excuse to stay on deck. And loves the burning boy. Again, loves the boy stood on the burning deck, trying to recite, the boy stood on the burning deck. Loves the sun stood stammering elocution while the poor ship in flames went down. Loves the obstinate boy, the ship, even the swimming sailors, who would like a score and platform too, or an excuse to stay on deck. And loves the burning boy. During the process of organizing this episode, my son received a contemporary kid's book that begins with a small sailor child who idolizes an emotionally inscrutable captain father. And then the ship starts to burn. The ship evacuates. The child turns back to stay with him. I'm thinking, oh my God, is this really a retelling of Casabianca? But when the child finds the father passed out below deck, he is clutching a small box. Inside, a plush toy from his own childhood. They safely leave the ship. I'm glad we're more gentle with children now. Let's try the poem one last time. Loves the boy stood on the burning deck, trying to recite, the boy stood on the burning deck. Loves the sun stood stammering elocution while the poor ship in flames went down. Loves the obstinate boy, the ship, even the swimming sailors, who would like a score and platform too, or an excuse to stay on deck. And loves the burning boy. And that was our poem. 
I hope it unfolded for you in a way which made you glad to make it your own. And I hope you can hold on to it. Review it on paper or let it live more like a song in your memory. Thank you to Susie Boyd for lending me this podcast's title. To G.W. Sock and the X for use of their song, The Art of Losing, which borrows the words of Elizabeth Bishop. And thank you to my sound engineer, Alex. Stop the fluster of my-